Alrighty, friends, I'm just knocking down the balance of my uh, Starbucks Vanilla Sweet Cream Cold Brew Fenty and uh, leftover from last show. Still some left there and enjoying it. I'm still pondering some of these um, points that were brought up or questions that are on the list of calls that I I did, uh, rather of questions that I did not get asked when I was at Baylor. Then, and there are a couple of ones here that have to do with science. Now, many of you know, and I'll be mentioning this time and again, just to kind of so it sinks into your consciousness that I'm just completing a book called Street Smarts. And what I'm doing is taking different areas of challenge to Christian theism, and I'm addressing them with substance and then helping uh, form dialogues that will be springboards into a conversation using a tactical approach to make this the case against those views and in favor of the Christian views. So this is Columbo number three that is using questions to exploit a weakness or a flaw that we see in someone else's view. Actually, strictly speaking, Columbo number three, that would be the third step of the three-part game plan, is to use questions to make a point. And one of the points you might make is that their view is compromised in some way, and here's a way of, here's a question or two or three that will get you moving in that direction, all right? And uh, <clears throat> one of the things I deal with is in the book is the whole science issue. Um, I used to believe in God. Michael Shermer has said many times, now I believe in science. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but it strikes me as a false dichotomy. That's like, I used to believe in God, but now I believe in flush toilets. Well, why is it an either-or? Science can help us understand the material world and use what we learn to make functional things that help us live better. Okay? Why does the ability of science to do that eclipse the need for God. It isn't science that squeezes God out of the equation. It is philosophy that squeezes God out of the equation. And we've talked about this a lot, but this is really important to kind of get clear in your mind. Science is a methodology. It is a methodology that focuses on measuring details in the physical realm. And therefore, we have our five senses that give us um, access to the physical realm to allow us to discover the nature of the physical realm and then use what we discover to our benefit, okay? It is a philosophic statement, not a scientific one, to say that physical realm which science explores is the only realm that's real. There is nothing outside of it. Science does not teach you that. Philosophy teaches you that. That is a philosophic point of view. That's called metaphysical materialism or naturalism or physicalism because it, it, it claims or presumes, usually more to the point, that the material physical world is the only world that is real, and this world operates on inviolable laws, uh, uh, natural laws. That's where the naturalism comes in. Now, I just want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to think about machines. 
machines work this way, don't they? Um, you, you, you given a certain uh, energy available to a machine to operate, whether it's gas powered or solar powered or electrical powered or whatever, <clears throat> the machine operates mechanistically as machines do to accomplish a certain end because there are physical laws, if you will, that govern how machines operate. Giving one set of circumstances, it leads to another specific set of circumstances, which leads to another. That's called experimental repeatability, by the way. If you set things up exactly the same every time, then you're going to get exactly the same result. Why is that? It's because mechanistics mechanistic systems are deterministic. They, the, the prior set of physical conditions determined the next step of the physical conditions, okay? And those physical conditions determine the next step. Think of dominoes falling. Okay, one domino in the middle of the line is going to fall because some domino fell against it. And it fell against this domino because some prior domino fell against it. So physical systems are like that, deterministic. Now, you see maybe what this, what happens then if everything is, if, if, if philosoph a philosophical view is accepted that describes the universe that way, closed system of cause and effect in a material world governed by natural laws. Everything's a machine. Yeah, everything is a machine, including you. Now, I just scratched my chin because I felt an itch. But according to a materialistic view, I did that mechanistically as a machine. I didn't choose to do that. I can't choose to do that. There is no freedom of choice in a mechanistic world. That was the result of prior physical conditions that caused this inexorably for me to cause me to do this inexorably. I had no choice about it. But that's what mechanistic systems are like. And that's what the world is like if the philosophy that is governing the practice of science is true. Everything's a mechanism. Now, I think that philosophy is false. For example, one reason is that I have freedom of the will. How do you know that? Because I, am, I have direct awareness of it. It's just the way, same way I know if, if I'm hungry or not, because I feel hungry. I'm directly in touch with that feeling. I'm directly in touch with, the, if I get stuck with a pen, with the sensation of pain. How do you know you're feeling pain? Because I'm feeling it. By the same token, in the same way, I am directly aware of the decisions that I'm making non-deterministically about things that I do, like scratch my chin. And by the way, anybody who's inclined to disagree is going to have to disagree because they have thought about the alternative and think the alternative is a better explanation. That is, determinism is a better explanation. But they can only do that if they're aware of their own thoughts and they're making their own decisions about what to believe because there are good reasons to believe it. 
In other words, you have to exercise freedom of the will in order to deny freedom of the will. This isn't going to work. Anyway, so uh, this is just a broad picture of the kinds of things that are going on in this scientific enterprise. And my predicate, what I just spent talking about in the last eight minutes, um, will lay a foundation for how I respond to some of these these uh, these questions. And let's see, here's the first one. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. Which one do I want to read here? Uh, is there a different, no, is there a respond? Uh, creation, creation worldview, uh, the theory of evolution. Um, okay, here. How do you respond when an atheist says science and faith in God are incompatible because science requires observation which is the antithesis of faith. Okay, let me say it again so you get it. Science and faith are incompatible. Faith and God are incompatible. Because science requires observation, which is the antithesis of faith. Now, of course, a lot going on in this. This this presumes an understanding of faith that is antithetical to observation, and observation is a central and necessary part of science. Okay, um, there's a lot I could say about this, but right from the outset, we're back to I don't believe in God, I believe in science. In other words, I can't believe in God, I believe in flush toilets. This is a false dichotomy. Why can't science just operate the way science operates by observation, presumably, and and faith in God still be legitimate? Why are they incompatible? Oh, science operates by observation. Therefore, faith in God is not legitimate. Huh? How? I'm not claiming that faith in God is science. So how, how does my faith in God, however you want to construe those words, but whatever, how does my faith in God somehow obviate the scientific enterprise. It doesn't. It's ir- it's ir- in, in one sense, at least one way of looking at it, it's irrelevant. Now, there is a relevance that I'll talk about in a moment, but with regards to this kind of challenge, one doesn't affect the other, because, because faith, trust in God does not entail scientific methodology. Therefore, it's illicit. You see, there's another assumption there. It's not just that science entails observation, but that science is the only thing that gives you truth about the world. That's called scientism. And since your faith in God is not based on science, it can't give you truth about the world. See, that's what's going on in that challenge. There's another little piece that nobody has mentioned that's inserted in there. Okay, so let me just make an observation about science entails observation. And the first observation I'm going to make about that claim is it's not true. That is, it is not a necessary part of the scientific enterprise to observe things. Huh? Yeah, this is called the demarcation problem in the philosophy of science. What is the difference between science and non-science? That's asking for the demarcation between the two. And it's very difficult to establish that because there's no particular thing that is true of every area that we call science. What about physics? Physics is math. All right, that's science. 
Yes, but it's not observation. It can be applied to things you can observe, or you can observe orbits and describe them in mathematical ways. But the physics and the math aren't observation. Now, that doesn't mean the physics aren't sound. It just means that not, and this is just one example, but not every area of science that we consider legitimately science has observation as a central feature to it. And you can take any other category, any other requirement that people offer as a characteristic of the scientific method, and you're going to find examples of bona fide science in which that doesn't apply. So it turns out the scientific method is not something in particular. It's called the failure of the demarcation. All right? It's the demarcation problem and the failure to establish a clear demarcation. But this is not news to, to philosophers of science, and it's not injurious to science. It just means that there are a... <clears throat> that science, really, when you look at it, is a constellation of different activities. Some apply in some scientific uh, endeavors, and some apply in others. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that we can't know what's real or true. I'm just making the point that observation is not a required feature of a scientific enterprise, okay? That's the first concern here. Um, second concern is that science is not adequate to sustain itself. <laughs> I put this line in the story of reality. Um, no, no, in the tactics book, the 10th anniversary edition, I put this line in there. And the line is, um, I can't believe in God. Why not? No scientific evidence for him. Oh, well, then you shouldn't be, believe in science either. Why not? No scientific evidence for it. Hmm. Now, if I went too fast for you, I'll just explain it simply. The, the enterprise called science, the methodology, is not something that is established by science. It's established by philosophy. And it requires other things to be in place that you must trust to be so before it can work. So I'm just going to use the word faith here, because that's the word that was used in contrast to the scientific method in this challenge. I'm going to use the word faith because faith is a trust in something that you may have reason to believe, but probably the way most people use it, you can't be absolutely certain of. Okay, so I'm just trying to use their definition here. You have to have faith or trust confidence that the, say, the, the, our sense apparatus are adequate to tell us true information about the world before we can use that in conjunction with some methodology called science to determine other specific truths about the world, right? If our sensory apparatus doesn't work well, if we can't trust it, science is not going to get off the ground. So you have to have confidence or trust in that. You have to have faith in that. You have to have faith in mathematical concepts. You have to have faith in rationality. You have to have faith in the fact that scientists are operating in good, uh, good conscience the way they do their work. They're not cheating. They're not twisting things or whatever. There are a lot of things that have to be in place that are not scientific or not affirmed by science before science can begin to affirm anything else. So all I'm saying is this strict dichotomy between science and things we know 
by faith of some sort is not sound. There are things we have to be confident of and believe in before science can even do its work. And the, 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 the other problem, and many of you are familiar with this already, and that is that at least where Christian, biblical Christian faith is concerned, it is not a leap. It is an act of trust that could be based on things that you actually physically observe. Like people, take James and Paul, for example, who put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, did so because they saw him. Did so because he appeared to them as the resurrected Christ. Okay? So there they there they there were empirical details. There was empirical evidence that grounded their confidence that Jesus was the Messiah and was the foundation for their belief, their trust in him, resulting in their salvation. So there isn't this dichotomy the way the question has characterized it between facts and observation on the one hand and and faith in what what nothing on the other can't trust it we don't you know you're just believing i want you to listen to the way john starts his first epistle listen to these words and by the way listen for the 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 sensory words the empirically related language what was from the beginning what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was in the father and was manifested to us what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ wow i mean it's almost over the top all right i get it john i get it you saw him you listened to him you heard him you handled okay i get it oh well let me say it again he says yes the the Peter says we're not we're not making these stories up. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. So here we have a question, or it's not a question; it's a challenge. Um, and that is, science and faith in God are incompatible because science requires observation, which is the antithesis of faith. First of all, even if that were true. That wouldn't mean that belief in science and belief in God are incompatible. Okay, we're back to, you know, God in flush toilets again. Um, secondly, it is not the case that science always requires observation. Thirdly, science also requires a belief in a whole bunch of things, many of them which can't be proven in order to begin working at all. And finally, it turns out that biblical faith is a trust based on evidence. And as I just read to you, 
some of that evidence involves things that we can actually observe in the physical world, or the disciples did in the case that I mentioned, the resurrected Christ. And there are other other things that can be done, too. The existence of the material world, the design of the material world, these are all material things, empirical things, that that lend themselves to a justification that confidence in the existence of God is sound and reliable. All right. Okay, let's take a break. Come back with more here on Stand the Reason when I return. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, and our newest apologist, John Noyes, are available, both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule them today. Our speakers can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read their bios and learn more about the topics they cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, or John today. All right, a Greg Kokel here, giving you a piece of my mind, as I do every Tuesday from 4 until 6 p.m. Now i, I got to think about it. You know, I, for so many years, it was Friday, Saturday, 3 to 6, um, early on in my radio career. And th- those words would just come off my tongue, along with the phone number for KBRT, and I didn't have to think about them. And then we started changing things around, and I can't remember. i got to think really carefully about when it is. So... Tuesdays, 4 to 6, L.A. time, 855-243-9975, which I'm reading it off because I don't have it memorized anymore. 855-243-9975, which is evidence that it's harder to memorize things when you're older than it is when you're younger. Kids can memorize so easily. I mean, just like it's, this is one reason that in the trivium, in the first stage of the trivium, they, which is three stages of learning, basically paralleling 
grammar school, middle school, and high school, but grammar school is the grammar stage, and kids learn, they memorize really easily. I remember when I was trying to teach my daughter, when Annabeth, when she was really young, the Lord's, not the Lord's Prayer, but uh, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And th- so I'm saying, I'm going to teach you this, right? And she's riding along in the back seat in the chair. And so I'm trying to go from memory, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, you lie down in green pasture, make me by streams of still water. Wait, so you walk by still water before you lie down in the pasture. That was my thinking. But that isn't the order of the verse. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's the way it actually goes. But what I did is I'm riding in the car, and I got those two lines mixed up. And so I told my daughter this. She's repeating it after me, and it was very hard for her to relearn the correct one when I finally figured out what was correct. So uh, I guess the moral of this story is memorize when you're younger, because the older you get, the harder it's going to be, which actually Amy just told me that the other day. She memorized a lot of Scripture, and she says, oh, man, it's so much harder to do it now that I'm older. So get that done early on. Just a recommendation. Or with your kids, start early. By the way, that has a point that I've made about raising children. Start early with their theological education and make it consistent. However it is that you're doing it. If you're homeschooling, that makes it a lot easier. But if not... Make it consistent. Right after dinner, probably the best thing. Clear the dishes, sit down 10 minutes, 15 minutes of something as a family that's spiritual every single night. And when they're really young. So they never remember a time when it was different. So you're not trying to get up to speed and get critical mass with some 14 or 15-year-old that gets really annoyed because now you want to do spiritual stuff after dinner. Start young. Plus, they'll remember stuff a lot easier then as well. Anyway, okay, I have, uh, uh, we're going to go to open mics right now. We have another caller coming on board live, but let's go to open mic here, and uh, let's take Natalie's call, okay? Kyle, you see that? I should have given you, there, that's it. Natalie. Hi, Greg. So my name is Natalie, and I recently um, got enrolled into an AP research class, and it's a new class, and basically at the end of the year, we have to give a presentation in front of um, our peers and some teachers about our findings on a research topic of our choice. Mm-hmm. And we have to come up with like a methodology to... Um, complete the research and I went into the class because I wanted to pick some topic within apologetics to research so that I could you know share a little bit of that um, with my class and with my teachers because I just thought that would be cool but um, Hmm. part of the course description and the requirements for our research topic is that there has to be a gap so to say in the research so basically there has to be a part of the topic such as if I were to choose intelligent design or morality, there would have to be some sort of part of that topic um, that still needs to be explored or researched. And (laughs) as far as I can think, um, there really isn't any, any topic within apologetics out there 
that needs extra research. So I was just wondering if you had any suggestions on topics for me, um, because I'd really like to share apologetics with my class. Thank you. Wow. Um, well, Natalie, I'm impressed um, with you. I don't know how old you are. Um, um, this is great. I And this is AP research, so this is advanced and like honors stuff, advanced placement. Is that what that stands for? Um, honor stuff. I'm a little mystified here by the requirement that the work can be done, must be done in an area that needs research. Um, this sounds like a, a PhD requirement. You know, people are trying to figure out their thesis for PhD research, they got to they got to break new ground. And the difficulty is, it's hard to find new ground to break. Um, and this is where I'm at a loss at this particular point. Um, I, I think as I understand your question, what is some new ground I could begin researching on that hasn't been researched yet? And um, when I read the summary, Natalie, of your question, anticipating your, you actually giving me the details, which you did, um, I thought, oh, what would I do? What would I recommend as a research project? I thought immediately of intelligent design. And the reason is, is there's so, there's such an abundance of of evidence for intelligent design, and there, uh, and it is very, very, very compelling. Even hardened atheists like Richard Dawkins are caught up short trying to explain the fine-tuned constants of the universe, or things like that. And they'll just say, "Well, we just got lucky." That's what Dawkins said. So I think it's a very compelling area. The problem is that it looks like the requirement is that it's got to be an area where new research can be done. And like I said, this is this is the problem of confronting PhD candidates in a field to find areas of new research. And um, the, the difficulty for you as a student is that if there you find a topic where there's no research, how are you going to... How are you going to do your project? You have to do the research. You can't, it's hard to go to other people who have already done the heavy thinking and and um, and the analysis, and, and you can kind of pull it all together and give a report. I mean, I, let's face it, what I do, things I write, I'm borrowing from other people and organizing it in an accessible fashion, but it isn't like I'm thinking up new things usually. I honestly do not know what practical areas of Christian apologetics are, um, are, are, are not being researched already or have not been researched. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't even—I'm I'm, just—I'm honestly trying to, to, um, to think about an area that the ground hasn't already been plowed. Characteristically, I'll say there isn't a thing, a challenge that has been raised against Christianity where some smart Christian thinker has not worked through it and provided an answer. And I think that's largely true. Now, with the new challenges that are coming up that are uh, more cultural things, 
Um, I mean, there are new things. I never expected the gender dysphoria crisis. Uh, I, I never expected uh, the critical race theory stuff to be an issue. Uh, but all those issues, which hit us so hard in the last four or five years, there have been lots of careful Christian thinkers that have come to the table and worked these things out and written about them. So if, and I suspect either this is high school, I guess it's high school, I, I presume, I'm not sure, Natalie, but especially AP classes, they don't call college courses AP classes usually, probably high school. And I'm am I, I'm presuming maybe since this sounds like the question had to do with the project had to do with some Christian issue. Maybe this is a Christian school. But to me, it's a pretty rigid requirement to say you got to work in some area that research hasn't been done yet. That means you have to be the kind of person that can do the research. But that's what PhD students do. They show their mettle by plowing new ground and doing the research over two or three years of writing, <laughs> writing a thesis. Um, I'm looking at Amy now, wondering if she has any ideas of, of areas that uh, have not been explored. And I honestly cannot think think of them. One of the difficulties of being a writer in the area of apologetics is it's hard to find new things to write about. And though Zondervan had asked me in the past about a general apologetics book, I, I told him, I'm, no. Why not? There's so many of them out there that are great. Why should I reproduce what's already available? Now, I decided to do one, Street Smarts, but that's because I'm combining general apologetics with a tactical approach. So there is an angle on this. And a number of these particular issues, I do have my own little twist on them, approaching from a little different angle that people might find helpful. But this is the difficulty here. I feel bad. Natalie, that I'm not able to give you something to work with. Um, and there's a chance. I mean, I don't know how long ago Natalie contacted us, but uh, if there's a date on that, uh, three weeks ago. Oh, maybe the, the opportunity's already passed. I don't know. So my apologies. But it doesn't matter if I would answer this three weeks ago. The answer would still be the same. I don't know what area would be a good one for you to plow new ground on. I think the design argument is one of the most powerful and the most accessible to the rank and file. I, I like the moral argument myself, but that's not quite as accessible uh, because the distinction between objective and subjective morality is one that needs to be clarified for that argument to work. And I think people have a hard time with that. I know that some people are doing work with beauty right now as an apologetic. I think Megan Allman is doing some work on that at the moment. And I've talked to some other people. One person who's actually doing a PhD on it, I think. But in any event, it's... Well, I have no recommendation there. I think that's a tough one. It hasn't been touched, really, for a long time because it's takes a particular talent, I think, an insight to be able to leverage the concept of beauty into an apologetic. And I'm not capable of doing any original thinking on that one, I guarantee you. 
So uh, my apologies, Natalie, for not doing a better job <laughs> of answering this question for you. The key here is that still needs to be researched. I think that was in your question. Uh, but all things being equal, I think the design argument is really powerful. Whether it's the design, the physics, design constants, the design constants of the universe, you know, um, part of the reason that this is so powerful is because when you look at the numbers, which are astronomical, uh, they can be characterized in a way that's accessible, like take one electron in the universe and find it on your first try. <laughs> All right, that's kind of the the problem of getting some of these constants just so. But um, anyway, best I can do. Hey, shall we take a break? And then I'll get a breather here, and then we'll go to uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I'm going to be in a, about three weeks. No, in a month. And Lewis with his question. Stay with us. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. Alrighty, final segment here of the show. Let's go to Grand Rapids, and this is Lewis. Hello, Lewis. Hello, Louis Safer here. Hey, Lu L L was it Louis or? L yeah, it, it's Louis. It, it's French. Oh, Louis. Okay, got it. Bonjour. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, <laughs> it's kind of a combination. It's French and German. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Louis. What's on your mind today? Well, um, I've read your books many, many times. Um, one of them I've read is The Story of Reality probably over 100 times, and I've given no away over kidding. 50 copies of it. Wow, well, thank you. Well, I was you. very impressed with how it brings, sort of like having theology in, you know, in one little simple book, very concise segment, very uh -huh. well written. Thank you. But I've struggled a little bit with the section on... Um, evil. 
Right. And defining why does evil exist? I mean, I like your reasoning, but I just wonder if you have more thoughts about it. Okay. Because it seems like to me that, that God allows evil for his glory, but I didn't really pick up on that. Well, that that is always a safe thing to say, but it's more of a formal statement. You know, it's the kind of thing that covers all the bases, but doesn't give you a lot of substance as to how any particular occasion of evil brings glory to God, if that's even the way it works. You know, so um, most people well, I don't are not— mean con- the situation is, is that God will be glorified by us when we see it all worked out. That's yes, I think that's I'm right. Thinking. I think that's right. Okay. So um, because, in a certain sense, for God's glory would be an answer to almost any question you could ask— Sure. It turns out not to be very useful to solve particular problems, though it's true. It's just not sub—we want something a little more granular. Okay, well, I got that, you know, like, but why, in this particular case, how, in what way does it glorify God, evil in the world? So, in the book, The Story of Reality— which you have read many more times than I have. I've actually read it a few times, you know, but still. Um, the, what what I, I, I tried to do with that book, and even in the new one, Street Smarts, when I deal with the issue of evil, I try to demonstrate that the problem of evil is a real problem, first of all. Sure, and secondly, of because it's a real problem— that must mean that morality is objective. It cannot be subjective. And therefore, any, or relativistic, any explanation of evil that results in a relativistic explanation of evil is false, which includes Darwinian evolution, because all it can do is give you relativism. So I'm trying to clear the decks a little bit and, and, and demonstrate that if evil is real, which it is, and therefore morality is objective, which it is, then God must exist, which is the moral argument, okay? So I'm trying to dispatch, and I do this in the story of reality, dispatch the the cloud of confusion that um, people have regarding the problem of evil and the existence of God. It turns out to be one of the best arguments for the existence of God— and against atheism, not the other way around. Okay, now having done that, and the and part of the reason is is that God, the reason it doesn't evil doesn't um, disqualify God is first you need God for morality to be objective, for us to have a problem of evil in the first place. Secondly, it's not a contradiction, because as long as one could imagine the possibility that a powerful good God could allow evil for a morally sufficient reason, even theoretically, then the specter of contradiction just dissolves. It's not there, which is why sure. the moral argument—I'm sorry, the, uh, the deductive problem of evil challenge to theism fails— and for the most part is not pursued by philosophers anymore, because it's possible there could be a good God who is powerful, who does allow evil for a good reason. Okay, so now with all of that in place, and to me, that's the most important work. That's the most important work. 
because it is it, we we can secure the objectivity of morality we can take seriously the problem of evil and we can show that the problem itself is evidence for god not against god but now we're left with a a, a bit of a conundrum and that's your question well why what is the specific reason or maybe reasons that god has allowed evil what is the morally sufficient reason that he's done that. And this is where we end up with speculation. And the broad answer for his glory, like we discussed earlier, doesn't take us very far, okay? Now, what I do in the story of reality is I speculate a little bit. And yeah. um, one and of I the... I love your speculation. It's wonderful. <laughs> thank you. But it's it's just a speculation. And so this, exactly. is, what, this is what theodicy is. Theodicy is an attempt to give sure. a rationale why God would allow evil in the world. And, 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 and there may be a number of reasons, but what, what I guess broadly what I would say is that God created creatures that would be able to share his happiness. But happiness and morality are connected. God is supremely happy, classically, because he's morally perfect. Okay, and so um, God created us to share with him his happiness, but what he purposed was that we would be the kind of creatures that could grow in virtue by being obedient through exercising moral choices. Now, that's what moral freedom is. My view about heaven is in heaven we don't have moral freedom if what a person means by moral freedom is that we have the possibility to do evil. We won't have that possibility in heaven. But God has—God is morally good, and he doesn't have the possibility of do evil. His character is fixed in goodness, and therefore every decision that he makes is going to reflect his native goodness. I think we'll be like that. When we see him, we will be like him, because we see him as he is. But for now— this is a period of time where we have a chance to grow in virtue by exercising moral choices. And in growing in virtue, we are also growing in our ability to experience happiness. And, um, uh, of course, the downside of moral freedom is it can be used for rebellion, which is what ended up happening. So right. God allowed evil and the possibility of evil because there was a good thing that was part of that possibility, and that good thing was moral freedom and the the development of virtue that could result of, from it. But the downside is the fall, and in God's view, is worth the risk, as it were. You know, the balance works out for greater good. Now, I presume that because God, of God's goodness, right? But um, that's yeah. that's that's kind of the way I cash this out, other people have had other ideas. You have the summum bonum, uh, the idea that 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 this world is not the best possible world, but it leads to the best possible world. That the the world is going to be that that the final disposition of things will be a better world than would have obtained if there was no fall to begin with. There will be a greater amount of good and a greater amount of glory um, given to God than had there been no evil allowed in the world to begin with. So there's an argument. That's a theodicy, too. 
I think mostly sure. what we have to do is we have we can speculate, nothing wrong with that, but just acknowledge that our speculations are speculative. And to me the most Well, they must be in the confines of scripture. Say again? They must be within the confines of scripture at sure. the same time. Well, oh, that's yeah, true. We that, can't be speculating outside of truth. Well, we don't want to speculate in a way that contradicts what Scripture says. That's what I mean. Yeah, right, that's exactly. right. Yeah, so that's, you know, that's what we're facing. Uh, we, we give it our, sh- our best shot, and there are a lot yeah. of different speculations, whatever. To me, though, the important thing are those first things that we know we can count on. And in the new book, The Street Smarts, um, I am not, in dealing with the challenge of the problem of evil— I am not trying to explain why God allowed evil. I speculated on that in the story of reality. What I am doing is that preliminary work of showing that the problem of evil is not a problem for Christian theists. It's a problem for atheists. And it actually affirms objective morality. It affirms the existence of God. And that's the most important work that we need at this point. And by the way, it also affirms the goodness of God. I argue. Well, that's what I thought. That was great strength. Your discussion of everything that comes out of the goodness of God. Yeah. Well, but the thing is, if God is not good, uh, let me back up and put it this way: if, in order to ground morality, goodness, which is the only which makes sense of badness, in order to ground sure. it, we have to have a standard, and the standard has to be not just an abstract standard, but it has to be a person, because no one has an obligation to abstract standards. Um, I don't have an obligation to the Pythagorean theorem, for example. It just sits there, right? Um, yeah. But, but we have obligations towards other persons who are in a, an appropriate position to, to make demands of us. Well, that would be God. So in order to ground the goodness that's necessary to explain the problem of evil, we have to have a supremely good person. If we don't have a supremely good person, then we can't have good. And if we can't have good, we can't have evil. So the choice then is between no morality at all, and therefore no problem of evil, or a good God. That's the choice. It's that or nothing, because there are no other alternatives that make any sense of what we experience in reality. So uh, I think that the problem of evil, ironically, is evidence that God himself is actually good. He's a good God. And if he's not good, then nothing is good. No one is good, nothing is good, and nothing is bad either. It's just all lost in a twilight of moral nothingness, as I've said written before. Sure. So, right. I mean, do you have any of your own thoughts on this? We've got about five minutes to go here, and I don't have time to get into another question, but I'm well, interested I guess, what you I think. Well, I guess I see, though we don't see it, I, I remember taking theology, and, and uh, uh, the professor gave an illustration of it, sort of like the backside of the tapestry. Boy, that's all confusing where that's all going, you know, sure. when you're when you're, you know, you have a string and a bunch of green over here, and then all of a sudden right. the string runs down there to green down, and you see all that, and you go, seems like a mess. What a mess. And then, then you know, I think in eternity, God's just going to turn it over. Yeah. Ah, and we're all going to be learning about that for eternity <laughs> of the greatness and giving glory to God. Yeah. But 
I really like your book. I think the power of it for me is to give it to other people and challenge them to understand the scripture as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, it gives the big picture, and I'm just trying to motivate people to read it and talk about it. I, like I say, I've given away, I don't know, 40 or 50 wow. copies. I try to find, uh, uh, you know, used ones here and there and wherever <laughs> I can pick them up. I hope you're not <laughs> finding them at the Goodwill store. Well, that's like yet. the worst. I've mostly gone to uh, Baker Bookhouse in Grand Rapids, but um, oh, okay. Oh, well, that's now right. they've kind of run out. I bought them all. <laughs> well, you're you're uh, you're uh, in Grand Rapids. There's a whole bunch of publishers there, and I'll be in there uh, there in October, actually doing the filming for Street Smarts. God willing, if I get not only the manuscript done, but I get the script done for the filming of the video product. But uh, yeah, you have all those well, publishers that's, that's there. Great. I'll tell you one thing, though, just in closing, just in the last couple minutes, one thing that I I hear from lots of friends of mine that are apologists, and I just think they're flat-out mistaken on this. Um, they, They connect the necessity for something like moral freedom to the ability to love, and that if we don't have the freedom to love... Um, and moral freedom, then we don't have the freedom to love, and we're just machines, and so love is impossible. I do not think this is an accurate characterization, because God doesn't have the freedom to sin or to do evil, but he is the foundation of all love. And also, when you think of the relationships, the love relationships that you experience— and I'm using my words advisedly here, the love relationships that you experience. So people who are in love with their spouses or their girlfriends or boyfriends or their children. I ask this question, do you love your children? Yes. When did you start loving? I love my children from the first day that they came into the world. Okay, when they came into the world, did you make a decision to love them? No. No, it just kind of happened. It (laughs) happened. Of course, it happened. It's not—love isn't something you freely choose to do. Now, I understand that in certain relationships, we do make decisions to be loving, but that's an action. And and love is an action. I admit that. But when we're talking about the experience of love, the loving emotion— all right? Like when we love, what is it? Why do people get married in the West, at least, because of some love? It isn't they said, oh, I'm going to just choose to feel an emotion about that person. No, something happened. There's a wooing that goes on, and we 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 fall in love. You know, I didn't want right. to do it. Yeah. You made me love you, you know, Judy Garland. <laughs> so um, it, it, it's like it just happens. This is the reality. This is why I do not think our ability to love is tied at all to our freedom of choice. When I say our ability to love, I mean experientially. Obviously, when a husband and wife are at odds with each other, they are still obliged to act in a loving fashion, in a virtuous fashion, as a matter of choice. But we're not talking about their emotions at that point. Hopefully, when people are acting loving, the emotions will follow. And that's actually third world marriages. A lot of them are like that. That is, they're arranged sure. marriages, and we learn to love each other. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, nothing, yeah. so I I do not think that the characterization or the 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 free will is necessary for us to love. Way of explaining why evil is a possibility is a good one, 
because I think it mm-hmm. mischaracterizes how love actually works. And it also raises other questions, other possibilities of God, um, in a certain sense, wooing us in a powerful way so that we turn to Him and fall in love with Him in a certain sense and become Christians, because He is drawing us in a way that then we are exercising our will to believe in Him because we are He is doing something in us that is very powerful. So, uh, and this can affect other aspects of theology too. But anyway, Louis, I've given Luis, I've given you some things Louis. to think about. No, just Louis. Oh, like Louis, Louis, Louis. It should be L O U E Y, like he. Well, sort of. Something like Huey, Dewey, and Louis. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Okay. I spell it with an E, but but. Okay. More more, just, I'll I'll try to get it right next time you call. Okay, Louis. Okay, well, I'd like to see you uh, in Grand Rapids. I do film and video production work, so it's yeah. interesting you're coming here to do film. Oh, yeah, well, that won't happen, I'll tell you, just because I'm going to be locked down. But the following weekend, I'm going to be in Owasso, Owasso, which oh. is just down the road from you guys, and I'll be teaching at well, a church Florida. there. So check out my schedule oh. at str.org, and I maybe will. we'll meet there. Okay, buddy? All right. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye now. Owasso, just north of Lansing, little bitty town. I don't have all the details in front of me. Anyway, that's the end of our show. Thank you, friends, for participating with me. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye.